this morning, I'd ask you please to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. This morning we'll look at verses 2 through 13. You, uh, if you have a sermon handout this morning, if you picked one up, you'll notice that the verses of Scripture for this morning are printed on the handout. Let me just tell you why I did that. I know most of you don't use the same version of the Scripture that I do. And so I printed uh, the scripture on your handout in the in the version that I will preach from. So if you'd like to follow along for the reading uh, in the same version that I will be reading from, that is printed for you on uh, your sermon handout. And if you did not get one of those, but you would like a handout, if you'll raise your hand, we'll get somebody to bring you one. Okay, we have a man on the spot going to take care of you. Okay. Anyone else need one of those? Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. If you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? And six days later, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain alone by themselves. And He was transfigured before them. And His garments were shining intensely white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were conversing with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three booths, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And all at once, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, He gave them orders not to recount to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. And they seized upon that statement, arguing with one another what rising from the dead meant. And they began asking Him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Let's take a moment to pray. O oh Lord, we pray that you would open your word to us and open us to your word. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Younger Christians will experience ridicule and persecution for their faith that older generations haven't been exposed to. Christians in America have known very little of what it means to suffer for our faith. But that's changing. Conservative, Bible-believing, evangelical Christians are rapidly becoming public enemy number one in our country. Now, I can't tell you exactly what the coming persecution may look like or how far it may go, but I can tell you that it's coming. 
the younger generation of believers will most certainly face more difficulty because of their faith than those of us who are older ever have. And if we live long enough, we're going to get a taste of it ourselves. But we shouldn't think that Christians suffering for their faith is some kind of exception or abnormality. You see, we've, we've had it so good in this country as believers with religious freedom that we think for Christians to suffer because of their faith is unusual or out of the ordinary, but it's not. On the contrary, for most of church history, in most of the world, persecution for Christians has just standard practice. It's the way it always has been in most places in the world, even today, and has always been. And you know what? Isn't that exactly how Jesus said it would be? Didn't He warn us that in this world we would have trouble if they persecuted Him? He said they would persecute those who followed Him. But He also promised not only that those who follow Him would suffer, but that if we endured, if we persevered, if we hung on till the end, we would have eternal life. So what you and I need then is something that will sustain us as we face suffering and difficulty because of our faith in Jesus. And the scripture we've read this morning is designed to do just exactly that. Now if you've been here this year, most of the year, you know that we've spent most of this year looking at the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark. And uh, the focus of the first eight chapters of Mark is really on the identity of Jesus and His ministry, right? We've seen Jesus preaching the Gospel of the Kingdom. We've seen Him calling His first disciples. We've seen Him demonstrating His power and authority through teaching and through signs and wonders. We've seen Him in conflict and controversy with the religious leaders of His day. But when you come to Mark chapter 8, specifically verses 27 to 30, there's a shift in the emphasis in Mark's Gospel. In Mark 27 through 30, this is where Peter confesses, you are Christ. But the next thing out of Jesus' mouth turns the emphasis in this story. In verse 31 of Mark 8, it says, And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. You see, the first half of the book of Mark is about the ministry of Jesus. The second half is about the mission of Jesus. What is the mission of Jesus? The cross. That's why He came. And it's at the end of Mark chapter 8 that that emphasis shifts from Jesus doing ministry to Jesus sets His eyes toward Jerusalem and the cross. The key verse for this second half of Mark is Mark 10.45 where it says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. See, 
the picture of Jesus in the second half of Mark's Gospel is the suffering servant. Come to suffer to purchase salvation for His people. Here's the problem. The disciples could not accept the idea of a suffering Messiah. The Christ isn't supposed to suffer. The Christ is supposed to come as King and overthrow Israel's enemies and establish a new day of glory and prosperity for Israel. That's what He's supposed to do. He can't die. That's not part of the plan. Well, at least it wasn't part of their plan. But a suffering Messiah was part of God's plan. There are two things that the disciples needed to know for certain if they were going to accomplish the mission God gave them. First of all, they needed to know that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of God. They believed that, but all this talk about suffering has really confused them. So they needed reassurance that despite any confusion, He is who they believed He is. And the second thing they needed to know is the suffering of Christ was part of God's plan regardless of the fact that they didn't understand it, that that's not what they expected for the Christ to come and suffer and die, they needed to know that both things were true. He really is the Christ, and yes, He's got to suffer and die. They couldn't put them things together in their Jewish thinking. Their Jewish theology had no place for a suffering Messiah. But God had to teach them that both realities were true. He is the Son of God, and yes, He must suffer. Now, why is it so important for them to get that? See, that's what the transfiguration is about. This story is to permanently imprint in their minds those two realities. The reality of Jesus as Christ, the Son of God, and the reality of suffering for both Christ and those who follow Him. And here's why it's so important they get that. Because it is that knowledge about Jesus it's that, it's that vision of Jesus as who He really is. That's what would sustain them when it came time for them to suffer. Let me say it to you like this. This is really the point of the whole message. It is our knowledge of Christ that sustains us in suffering for Christ. It is our knowledge of Christ that sustains us in our suffering for Christ. They needed this vision from the mountain where Jesus is transformed, they needed that etched in their minds and hearts. So when the day come they had to suffer, they wouldn't be in doubt about who He really was and what God's plan really was. Let me show you this as we walk through these verses. Here's the first thing we see as we look at these verses together. We see a vision of Jesus to erase any doubt about His identity. In verses 2 through 4, we have a vision of Jesus that is designed to erase all doubt about who He really is. The first thing we notice is His appearance. So Jesus goes up on the mountain with Peter and James and John, and the Bible says He is transfigured before them. The word means transformed. This Greek word is where we get the English word metamorphosis. And it's referring to the transformation of his 
outward appearance. The Bible tells us here that in verse 3, His garments were shining intensely white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. That simply means they were whiter than was possible by any human means. This was a supernatural event. No means on earth could have made His clothes shine that intensely, brilliantly white. And if you read the same account of the transfiguration and Matthew and Luke's gospel, you find out not only were His clothes shining, but His face was shining. Now what's that about? A couple of Old Testament Scriptures will help us understand what's happening here when Jesus shines in brilliant light. Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2. Bless Yahweh, O my soul. O Yahweh, my God, You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, wrapping Yourself with light as with a cloak. Here's another Scripture. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His clothing was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. You see, when Jesus is transformed on the mountain, the disciples are getting a glimpse of his divine nature. What does that mean? That means from the moment Jesus was born, he was God in flesh. He was truly human, but he was truly God. Now, what they saw with their eyes was His flesh, right? His humanity. What happened on the Mount of Transfiguration, for a moment, for a moment, who He really was on the inside was made visible on the outside. You see? His divine glory, His godness, was made visible for a moment so they could see who He really was. And John and Peter both wrote about this in their writings in the Scripture. You remember John chapter 1? John refers to Jesus as the Word, right? I don't have time to explain that, but in verse 14 he says, the Word was made flesh, Jesus was made flesh, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, we saw His glory. Peter wrote about the transfiguration too. When he wrote in 2 Peter 1.16, he was talking about the event that we're reading about, and he says, we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. The transformation of Jesus on the mountain conforms, excuse me, confirms the idea that He truly is indeed the Son of God. That's His appearance. But there's more that happens on the mountain. We see the witnesses. There are two witnesses. If you notice verse 4, Elijah and Moses appear. And they're talking with Jesus. And their appearance confirms that not only is Jesus the Son of God, but He is the promised Christ, the Messiah, the promised King. Now let's look at Elijah first. Elijah uh, is 
one they expected to come before Messiah. Malachi records a prophecy in Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 that says before the Messiah comes to establish God's kingdom, the prophet Elijah would come. This is what it says. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and awesome day of Yahweh. See, so they were expecting Elijah to appear before the Messiah. So Elijah appears on the mountain to give testimony that this is him. This is the one that the prophecies speak of. Now we see Moses appear also. Well, in Deuteronomy, Moses made a prophecy. In Deuteronomy 18.15, he prophesied that one day God would send a prophet like him. This is what it says. Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. You shall listen to him. Did you catch what he said? God's going to send a prophet like me one day and you will listen to him. If you'll look down in our scripture for this morning in verse 7, you'll see that's exactly what God says to the disciples on the mountain of transfiguration. Listen to him. Why does Moses appear? Moses wants to confirm this is the prophet that I told you God was going to send. Listen, Elijah and Moses are witnesses. This is the one who the Old Testament law and prophets testified about. This is the one who is to come. This is the Christ. I want you to think about what's happening on this mountain with Jesus' appearance and with these witnesses. The transfiguration serves the same purpose as a DNA test. It's to demonstrate once and for all who Jesus' Father is. And His Father is God. When Jesus announced that He was going to suffer and die, the disciples are confused and disillusioned. It makes them question everything they thought they knew. Well, what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration is, desi is designed to erase any doubt that may have come in their minds because of Jesus' announcement about His suffering and death. The Transfiguration is to clear up any lingering doubts about who this man really is. He is indeed Christ, the Son of God. Now the next thing I want you to see as we look at the text is this. There is a command from God to take seriously Jesus' words about suffering. We see this in verses 5-8. through eight. God appears and gives a command to the disciples and the command is really a call to them to pay attention to what Jesus is trying to say to them. Look at verse 5. After seeing this vision, Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three booths or three tents, temporary shelters. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Peter's words here reveal that he has failed to grasp the true significance of what he's seeing. He doesn't get it. You see, he is seeing Jesus glorified. He's seeing the godness of Jesus. 
He sees Moses and Elijah present. But what does that kindle in his mind? It kindles thoughts in his mind, finally. Finally, it's time. Now he's going to establish the kingdom. Now he's starting to look like a king. Right? Forget all this talk about suffering and dying. You see, what happened on that mountain is what Peter and the other disciples were waiting for. They were waiting for Jesus to appear and show who He was. And so Peter sees this. He sees Moses and Elijah appear and he thinks, finally it's here. Finally now He's going to set up the kingdom. And he doesn't want this to end. He says, look, let's just camp out here a while. We'll build temporary shelters, tabernacles, which were the same kind of temporary shelters Israel lived in during the wilderness wanderings. He said, look, let, let, let's, let's just stay here. Which shows they had completely ignored what Jesus had trying to tell them about He had to go to the cross. And I want you to notice something else. If you'll think about it, in verse 5, Jesus... Um, Peter tends to put Jesus and Moses and Elijah kind of on the same level. You see it? Let's build three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. In other words, they, they, they're treating Jesus like He's on equal level with Moses and Elijah. Here's what they failed to see. Moses and Elijah appeared to give testimony to who Jesus was. He wasn't equal to them. He's far greater than they. What Peter was seeing was designed to set Jesus apart as the one to whom Moses and Elijah simply witnessed, simply pointed. But Peter doesn't get it. And when God speaks in verse 8, when we read from the other accounts in the Gospel of Matthew, we find out God actually interrupts Peter while Peter is speaking. A cloud it literally says a cloud occurred. A cloud suddenly gathered over them. And we look in the Old Testament and we find out the significance of this cloud. Exodus 40 verse 34. This is after the tabernacle was first set up. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. See, when you see this cloud gathering over the mountain of transfiguration, God has just showed up. God the Father, His presence has just showed up. And then He speaks out of the cloud. What does He say? This is my beloved Son. It's as if God is saying, this isn't about Moses and Elijah. Let's build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And God says, stop. This has nothing to do with Moses and Elijah. This is about Jesus. He is my beloved son. That explains verse 8. All at once, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. What does God do? He just removes Moses and Elijah from the picture. He said, you're missing the point. It's Him you're supposed to see. It's Him you're supposed to recognize. Then comes the command. Here's this command. This is my beloved Son. Listen to 
him. Literally, it means give constant heed to what he is telling you. Now, here's the question. What had Jesus been telling them? Well, he had just finished telling them that he was going to suffer. He had just told them he's going to go to the cross. He's going to suffer and be rejected and die and then rise again. If you remember, Peter didn't like that boy. Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him and said, no, 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 no. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You can't die. But what does Jesus do? Jesus calls Peter Satan. And says, I've got to go to the cross. And guess what, big boy? Not only am I going to suffer, you are too. And then he says, Mark 8, 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. He said, not only am I going to suffer, but you've got to be willing to suffer too if you're going to follow me. What is God saying? God is saying to Peter and these disciples, you better take Jesus' words seriously when he talks to you about the reality of suffering. Because it's regardless of what you may think, it is a reality. It is going to happen. The Son of God is going to go to Jerusalem and die. And you are going to suffer. Despite what they thought or believed, it was going to happen. Listen, despite what you think or you believe, suffering for the believer has been common. It has been standard practice throughout most of church history. For the last 2,000 years, more often than not, believers have suffered for their faith. I know that's not what we've experienced here, but more often than not in the world, that has been the way it is. And we need to get in our minds, this is a reality. We need to accept that what is beginning to happen in this country is not out of the ordinary. This is just the way it is for believers in a world that hates God. John chapter 15, verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So here is a command from God to take seriously Jesus' words about suffering. But now I want to move on to verses 9 through 13. And this is what I want you to see. The key to understanding the purpose of the transfiguration. Okay, that's the next thing we see. The key to understanding the purpose of the transfiguration. And the purpose of the transfiguration is, is really twofold. And here's the first purpose. To sustain us in our suffering for Christ. Look at verse 9. As they were coming down from the mountain... He gave them orders not to recount to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. The Son of Man. What, what, what is that about? Why does Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man? It comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. This is a vision Daniel has. I kept looking in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and came near before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. 
Clearly, this is a vision Daniel has of Christ, the coming Son of God. And he calls him the Son of Man. Jesus is referring to himself as this one Daniel was given a vision of. And you'll notice what Jesus does. On the way down from the mountain, he returns to the topic of his own suffering and death. Do you see that? Don't tell anybody about this you've seen until the Son of Man rises from the dead. In other words, Peter, James, and John are not to breathe a word about what they just saw until after the resurrection of Jesus. But why? You, you look in verse 10 and you find out they did. They, they kept it to themselves. They didn't tell. But why, did, why didn't Jesus want them to tell? Wouldn't it go a long way toward proving that He was really the Christ if, he would, if they would tell people what they saw? You know what it would do? It would fuel the wrong ideas the disciples had about the Christ. You see, they thought Jesus had come to overthrow the Roman Empire and establish days of glory and abundance for Israel. They thought He was going to do that right then and there. And if they had seen this vision of Jesus, that would have fueled those speculations that that's what he's fixing to do. In other words, it would have given them the wrong impression. So he said, you can't tell them until after the resurrection. Why? Because the purpose of the transfiguration is not realized until after Jesus suffers and rises from the dead. I need you to understand what I'm telling you here. The kingdom of God that His people longed for. It was coming. It was coming. It wasn't a dream. But first, Jesus had to go to the cross. You understand? In order for the kingdom of God to be a reality like they desired it, Jesus had to die for sinners. It's only after the death and resurrection of Jesus that the transfiguration really comes into purpose. Here's what I mean. After this... The, the death and resurrection of Jesus, when it's all over and they are filled with the Holy Spirit and they finally understand the cross and all that Jesus came for, then, when they look back on what happened on that mountain as Jesus shined in the glory of His Father, as they look back and remember the testimony of Moses and Elijah, the voice of God from the cloud, what they saw with their own eyes, what they experienced would remind them that this is not an illusion. Jesus really is the Son of God. And here's why that's so important. It was proof that what they had come to believe was true. The transfiguration once Jesus rose from the dead, gone to heaven, once they're out in the world serving the cause of Christ and they begin to suffer for Jesus, what's going to sustain them? What's going what's to keep them believing that, this is, that what we hope for is not an illusion? What's going to make them believe the suffering is worth it? What's going to make them believe He really was who He said He was? and that really He really is going to stop. What reason would they have to keep believing in the midst of all that suffering? Because they saw Him. You understand? They saw His glory. You see, 
the disciples remained confused about the transfiguration until Jesus was after, until after he rose from the dead. It didn't make sense when it happened. That's why on the way down from the mountain, it says they were discussing one another what this whole thing about rising from the dead meant. Even after they saw it, they still didn't get it. Only after the resurrection would it make sense. Then, looking back, it all clicked. Listen to me, listen to me. As you and I begin to face suffering for the cause of Christ because of our faith, what's going to keep you and I faithful? What's going to sustain us through that suffering? What's going to cause us to keep believing and keep being faithful and hold on to our faith in Jesus and endure that suffering without flinching? What's going to cause us to believe it's all really true and it's all really worth it? It's what we know about Jesus. It's what we know. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. You see, when the disciples are out in the world preaching Christ and suffering for their faith, the transfiguration reminds them that what we hope for is not a dream, it's a reality. That makes sense. But there's another purpose for the transfiguration. And this is it. To confirm God's way is the way of the cross. It's to confirm that God's way is the way of the cross. Listen, in light of what they just saw on the mountain, Peter and James and John are more convinced than ever that Jesus really is the Christ. And of course they saw Elijah on the mountain and that brings them to thinking about this prophecy about Elijah from Malachi 4-5. And that's where the question in verse 11 comes from. They began asking him, saying, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? In other words, it's clear you're the Christ and you're here, but didn't the prophets say that Elijah's supposed to come first? A valid question. And Jesus seems to agree with the Jewish interpreters. When you look at verse 12, you see what it says there. He said to them, Elijah does come first and restore all things. Jesus does agree with their interpretation in part. But look at verse 13. I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Now when Jesus says here that Elijah has already come, he's talking about John the Baptist. Now John the Baptist was not literally Elijah. That's why when the scribes and Pharisees asked John, are you Elijah? He said no, because he was not the literal Elijah. You see, many of the Pharisees and scribes and the religious leaders, they expected the literal, real flesh and blood Elijah to come back. But, John was not literally Elijah, but he did fulfill the prophecy about Elijah. You remember when John's mother Elizabeth became pregnant with John? 
It was a miraculous pregnancy. An angel appeared to his father, Zechariah, in the temple to tell him, you're going to have a son, you're going to name him John. This is what the angel said to him in Luke 1.17. He will go before Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. In other words, he said to John, he said to Zechariah, your son John is going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah and fulfill the role of this one who is to come and announce and prepare the way of the Lord. And then in Matthew eleven fourteen, Jesus said, if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. What do you mean if you can accept it? In other words, for those who would believe, John fulfilled the role of Elijah. He restored them for the ones who would believe. Now, here's why all that's important. That's, that's not a digression. I'm going somewhere with all that. It's important that we catch this. Now look at thir verse 13 again. John came and fulfilled the mission of Elijah, but look what verse 13 says. Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished. What does he mean? What did they do to John the Baptist? They killed him. They killed him. John the Baptist came. He did what God sent him to do. He fulfilled his mission. And what happened? He suffered and he died. Now look back at verse 12. Let me show you something. Elijah does come first and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? It is written, he said, that the Son of Man is going to suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Where is that written? Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 3, listen to what the Bible says. Hundreds of years before Jesus came, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our peace fell upon him and by his wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. But oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, that for the transgression of my people, striking was due to him. So his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, 
nor was any deceit in his mouth, but Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If you would place his soul as a guilt offering, he will see his seed and he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of Yahweh will succeed in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it, and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. If you don't see Jesus in that, you're blind. Hundreds of years before he came, Isaiah tells us in clear, plain language, the Messiah is going to suffer and die for the iniquity of God's people. Now what does that have to do with John the Baptist and him coming and suffering. Let me make sure you, you see it, okay? John the Baptist came to fulfill God's mission and it led to his death at the hands of Herod. Jesus came to fulfill God's mission and it led to his death on the cross. Both of them came. Both of them did what God sent them to do. Both of them suffered and died. What's another way to say that? Let me say it to you like this. God's way is the way of the cross. You follow me? Jesus is saying, yeah, Elijah came and he suffered. And the Bible says that I'm going to suffer. They need to get in their mind, God's way is the way of the cross. That he needs them to know you can't get around this. There is no salvation without the cross. There is no kingdom without the cross. And Peter finally did come to get this lesson. And we know because he wrote in 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But that to the degree that you are sharing the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. You catch what he said? Don't act like some strange things happen to you when you suffer for Jesus. Peter finally understood this is not strange. This is your suffering with Christ, for Christ. It's just the way it is. The way of the cross really does lead home. When Jesus speaks at the trans excuse me, when God speaks at the transfiguration, when his voice echoes to the disciples, it is to confirm that what Jesus says about suffering is to be taken seriously. Despite what the disciples may have previously believed or previously been taught, the way of the cross was God's way. It was God's way for John, it was God's way for Jesus, and, it was, and it's God's way for you and me. As I've already said to you, I fully expect that the situation in America will grow increasingly more difficult for Bible-believing Christians. I believe that. As time goes on, persecution will increase. More and more, we will be ridiculed for what we believe. More and more, we will find our religious freedoms challenged and restricted. More and more, we will find ourselves facing difficulty and hardship because of our allegiance to Jesus. Only God knows how far it will go. What's going to sustain us when we're called on to suffer for our faith? What's going to sustain us? Our knowledge of Christ sustains us 
when we're called to suffer for Christ. It's what we know. It's what we know. We've seen his glory. Amen. We've seen his glory. How do I know it's true? Proof is alive on the inside of me. I've been set free. And that's all the evidence I need. I've seen his glory. I've seen it transform my own life. That's what, it's what we know about him that keeps us. What do we know? We know he's the Christ, the son of the living God. We know that by his suffering we have been saved. And armed with that knowledge, that assurance, we can face whatever suffering may come. Let's pray.